We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go. Episode 600 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. And yes, we have reached 600 episodes. 600 of this podcast. Uh, a thank you to you for that. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, thank you for the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Thank you for the positive written reviews on Apple Podcasts. This is the only Washington, D.C. sports podcast or show for which there is a new episode each weekday, Monday through Friday, with each episode out oh so early each weekday morning. This is the show that follows D.C. sports so that you don't have to, but this show does not happen without you. So, Again, thank you, uh, and welcome to this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi Podcast, what is the Thursday of the 2023 NBA Draft. And boy, <laughs> is there a lot swirling with our Wizards. Breaking news overnight, they are trading Kristaps Porzingis. Uh, now, we had multiple reports on Wednesday afternoon that the Wizards were trading Porzingis. The Wizards, Boston Celtics, and Los Angeles Clippers were working on a three-team trade in which Porzingis would have gone to the Celtics. But we late night on Wednesday night found out that that trade had fallen apart. But then soon after, a new trade per multiple reports, a three-team trade involving the Wizards, Celtics, and Memphis Grizzlies. The Wizards are getting the number 35 overall pick in the 2023 draft, Tyus Jones, Danilo Gallinari, and Mike Muscala. Uh, there is so much to talk about with this. Talk about it all, I shall. Next segment. A lot going on with the Wizards these days. And by the way, big television news regarding the Wizards on Wednesday morning. NBC Sports Washington is becoming monumental sports network effective this September. Uh, NBC Sports Washington is owned by the uh, Wizards' apparent operation of monumental sports and entertainment, and so the network is changing its name again. Uh, the network has gone from home team sports to Comcast Sportsnet to NBC Sports Washington 
to now Monumental Sports Network. No plans for Commander's coverage on Monumental Sports Network. As you likely know, there has been a divorce between the network and the team of the network and the team having had a uh, big money relationship for years. So Monumental Sports Network is going to be a whole lot of Wizards, Capitals, and Mystics coverage uh, given that those three teams are owned by Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Well, Monumental Sports Network may not cover the Commanders, but this podcast sure does. And coming up, I'm going to talk Commanders with Zach Selby, senior writer for Commanders.com. Zach, as an employee of the Commanders, has, shall we say, access to things that nobody else who covers the team has. And he writes a lot of in-depth stuff about the team for its website. And understand that Zach is not just some in-house shill for the team. Uh, Zach puts out good, thoughtful content. And so we are going to cover a lot of ground with the commanders, including plenty on quarterback Sam Howell. And Zach is not the only guest on this episode 600 of the podcast. After Zach, I'm going to welcome on Chelsea Janes, national baseball writer for the Washington Post. She on Tuesday evening broke the big news in the Mazin dispute that the Orioles have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed to the Nats for 2012 through 2016, about $100 million. We will get into why the O's are doing this, where the never-ending Mazin dispute is headed, and whether we're now actually truly closer to the learners selling the Nats and the Angeloses selling the O's. So Zach Selby and Chelsea Janes, not one, but two first-time guests on this podcast on episode 600 of the pod. Uh, And also on the show, I have a Nats win to discuss with you. Yes, an actual real-life Nats victory, just their fifth win over the last 21 games, but a 3-0 win over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park on Wednesday in the rain, in the slop. Uh, Boy, were the playing conditions not pretty, but the Nats got the win off uh, some notable roster moves prior to the game, Uh, and I'll give you my thoughts on a uh, rough Orioles loss on Wednesday afternoon, a 7-2 loss at the American League East leading and Major League leading Tampa Bay Rays for a split of a big two-game series as the Orioles' best starting pitcher this season, Tyler Wells, was not at his best. Uh, Before we get to some feedback, congratulations to the Capitals American Hockey League affiliate, the Hershey Bears. They have won the AHL's version of the Stanley Cup, the Calder Cup. Uh, The Bears in the best of seven Calder Cup finals against the Coachella Valley Firebirds went from down 0-2 to up 3-2 then lost Game 6 at the Firebirds late night on Monday night, but then won Game 7 at the Firebirds late night on Wednesday night. A 3-2 overtime win. The Bears in Game 7 overcame a 2-0 second-period deficit. Nine Bears who were dressed for Game 7 also appeared in games for the Caps this past season. We had a lot going on in Washington, D.C. sports late night on Wednesday night. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Aaron on something having to do with one of the limited partners in the Josh Harris group, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. Writes Aaron, Dearest Al, (laughs) hope all is well with you. I just wanted to know if you saw what appears to be a little celebratory purchase for the former Google CEO, Eric Schmidt. 
He dug around in the couch cushions to find some spare change, enough for a $68 million yacht, his third and now largest such craft, apparently. Getting it off of the sanctioned billionaire from Russia was a savvy move. Now the question is, will Schmidt be hosting his new pals, Harris and Rails, for game days or even draft parties on the new toy? I can't wait for the Washington Post stories to come out about the calls from the yacht to the front office to get its guys. Wishing you all the best. Uh, Thank you. For the email, Aaron, and Aaron at the bottom of his email provides links to sources for his email. He provides a bibliography. Uh, I read to you from the New York Post this past Friday, June 16th, quote, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt sailed off with the super yacht abandoned in the Caribbean by its Russian oligarch owner after the invasion of Ukraine with a winning $67.6 million bid during an auction Friday. Schmidt bought the 267-foot Alpha Nero yacht after it was left moored in Antigua by Andrei Geryev, the Russian billionaire who was slapped with sanctions by the U.S. Treasury last year, according to Bloomberg News. The Treasury Department claimed that Geryev, who made his fortune in the fertilizer industry, and is thought to be close to Russian President Vladimir Putin, initially bought the yacht for $120 million in 2014, but the Russian oligarch has denied the claim. The former Google boss, whose net worth was valued by Bloomberg Billionaires Index at $25 billion as of Friday, won the auction this morning in a fully transparent process, according to Sir Ronald Sanders, Antigua's ambassador to the U.S., end quote. So there you go. Congrats to incoming Commander's Limited partner, Eric Schmidt. He has himself a new high-level super yacht. You know, the number one person in the Josh Harris group, of course, is Josh Harris. The number two person in the Harris group is Mitchell Rails. But that does not mean that they are the wealthiest people in the Harris group. Uh, Eric Schmidt would appear to hold that title. Email from Dr. CCB on a few items, including something that I talked about on Monday's show, episode 597, the fact that theme songs for 1980s television shows were so good, and those songs were so good. Uh, Writes Dr. CCB, I was listening to the show on Monday, and I heard you discussing the best 80s and 90s television theme songs. Without a doubt, The Golden Girls has the best theme song of the 80s and 90s. That theme song makes you want to sing as soon as you hear Thank You for Being a Friend, Travel Down the Road, and Back Again. And the soulful remix by an unknown artist that went viral is awesome. Absolutely love the Golden Girls theme song. Okay, that concludes the e-entertainment portion of the email. Now let's talk about Bradley Beal. I am glad that the Wizards were able to trade him, even though they are getting peanuts back. It's a true sign that the organization is trying to rebuild and move in the right direction. It's just frustrating and disappointing that the old regime was unable to see how this was going to be a disaster. Offering this guy a $250 million contract with a no-trade clause? Really? Beal doesn't play defense, and he is hurt 70% of the time. Not sure which genius thought that was a good idea. Anyway, thanks for listening to me, Vent. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for the email, Dr. CCB. Yes, the Golden Girls theme song was very good, although what's especially fascinating to me about the Golden Girls is that there apparently was massive tension among the Golden Girls. Uh, B. Arthur, who played Dorothy, was known to call Betty White who played Rose, the C-word. Yes, 
the C word. Could you imagine someone calling poor Betty White the C word? But the show's casting director was this guy, Joel Thurm. He, in an installment of the Originals podcast last year, said of B. Arthur and Betty White, quote, literally B. Arthur, who I cast in something else later on, just said, oh, she's an effing C word using that word End quote. (laughs) How about that nastiness between the Golden Girls? Who the heck knew? Uh, And yes, as bad as the Wizards did bungle the Bradley Beal situation, uh, I, as a Wizards fan, do take solace in the team now finally appearing to have a true sensible direction, which is that of a rebuild. But of course, the Bradley Beal situation for the Wizards and all-time screw-up of a situation. Well, also not a good situation is what's happening with home and auto insurance right now. Uh, The home and auto insurance markets are messes right now. We are routinely seeing 20% increases in home and auto insurance, even when the account is clean, meaning no accidents or violations on the auto insurance and no claims on the property insurance. You right now have every reason to shop your home and auto insurance, and that's why you should go with BMC Insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com and you'll be put in touch with the owner and president, Matt Brooks, a loyal listener of this podcast. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. BMC Insurance. It offers home insurance, auto insurance, and also small business insurance in Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and North Carolina. BMC Insurance is an independent insurance agency, meaning that it has many, as in dozens, of insurance carriers it works with to make sure that clients are always paying competitive rates. Uh, What's especially great about BMC Insurance is that it has relationships with its clients. Uh, BMC Insurance is a trusted advisor for your insurance needs. BMC Insurance continues to work with clients after sales. Uh, It has team members who actually shop clients' insurance every year when they renew. And BMC Insurance does this proactively so that you don't have to. BMC Insurance will save you time and money. And perhaps most telling, BMC Insurance's client retention rates historically are much higher than industry averages. When people get BMC Insurance, they stay with BMC Insurance. Don't get gouged on your home and auto insurance. Check out BMC Insurance. Go to insurancebmc.com. Talk to my guy, Matt Brooks, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. And BMC Insurance does offer small business insurance. So if you're looking for general liability, workers' comp, or commercial auto insurance, BMC Insurance can help. Visit insurancebmc.com. That's insurancebmc.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Well, a big night on Thursday night for the Wizards' new front office triumvirate. Uh, Monumental basketball president Michael Winger, Wizards general manager Will Dawkins, and Wizards senior vice president of player personnel Travis Schlenk. Uh, We have the 2023 NBA draft, a draft in which the Wizards now are set to have four picks, the numbers 8, 35, 42, and 57 overall picks. A wild last few days for the Wizards continued on Wednesday with them reportedly agreeing on a big trade involving Chris Stapp's Porzingis. Yes, the zinger is gone. Uh, multiple reports on Wednesday afternoon 
that the Wizards, Boston Celtics, and Los Angeles Clippers were working on a three-team trade in which Porzingis would have gone to the Celtics, but we late night on Wednesday night found out that that trade had fallen apart. Then, soon after, a new trade per multiple reports, a three-team trade involving the Wizards, Celtics, and Memphis Grizzlies, and this trade does in fact appear to be happening. The Wizards are getting the number 35 overall pick in the 2023 draft, Tyus Jones, Danilo Gallinari, and Mike Muscala. So what happened here? Uh, This was ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski on ESPN Sports Center with Scott Van Pelt late night on Wednesday night. You know, probably around 10, I guess maybe 10, 15 tonight Eastern, you know, Boston decided that it was going to move on from those three team talks uh, with the Clippers uh, and the Wizards. Uh, The Celtics were going to send Malcolm Brogdon uh, to the Clippers. uh, And when they just couldn't get that deal finalized, they pivoted. And Washington uh, started to talk uh, again with Memphis. There had been some conversations, and Marcus Smart had been a player. Uh, The Grizzlies had targeted for obvious reasons. You see how he fits with that Grizzlies uh, roster, uh, bringing in his veteran toughness, his experience in the postseason, his leadership, all elements that they really wanted in Memphis, Zach Kleiman, uh, their GM. Uh, And so uh, they moved on to that deal. Tyus Jones, their point guard, uh, who, uh, you know, they had been talking with a number of teams about. He goes to the Wizards, gives them uh, a point guard that uh, they could have in the last year of his deal. And then two first-round picks from Memphis to Boston. They have a, a bushel of picks in Memphis, and they, you know, they've tried to use them in some big game hunting. But Marcus Smart, a player that Memphis sees, they can play him. Certainly, he can fill in for those 25 games without John Morant. And then those are two players who can play together. And then Boston gets what they had wanted all along: Kristaps Porzingis along their front line. He opts into. Uh, that $36 million in his deal. And uh, all of a sudden, you've got something of a blockbuster here uh, on the eve of the NBA draft. All right. So good stuff from Adrian Wojnarowski. Good stuff from Woj right there. I tell you, the NBA offseason is something. The NBA offseason, in a lot of ways, is better than the NBA season. So Wednesday was the day by which the Wizards' Kyle Kuzma and Chris Damps Porzingis had to make their player option decisions. We know that Kuzma is opting out of his contract. He is declining his $13 million player option for next season. Uh, That news was broken by Woj on Tuesday afternoon. What was left to figure out was what was going to happen with Porzingis, whose player option for next season is $36 million. And what is happening is that he is opting in. He is exercising that option and he is being traded to the Celtics as part of of this three-team trade that also features the Celtics sending Marcus Smart to the Grizzlies. But understand this about this trade. The Celtics in this trade are getting Porzingis and two first-round picks, one for 2023 and one for 2024. The Wizards in this trade are not getting any first-round picks. The Wizards are getting a 2023 second round pick, the number 35 overall pick, 
Uh, a good backup point guard in Tyus Jones and two other players, Danilo Gallinari and Mike Muscala. I have two very different reactions to everything that's happening with the Wizards right now. Uh, First of all, I love that the Wizards finally have a direction, finally have a plan, and that the new front office is implementing this plan in an aggressive, no apologies manner. Uh, And the plan is to blow the whole thing up. The rebuild is on, the tanking is on, the new front office wholeheartedly recognizes what needs to be done, the new front office is being empowered to do what needs to be done, and if you're wondering, well, does what is being done truly need to be done? The answer is yes. The Wizards have missed the playoffs in four of the last five seasons. The Wizards, during this stretch, have not won more than 35 games in a single regular season. What the Wizards have been doing isn't working. So I love that the Wizards finally have a true plan and that the new front office is executing that plan, no questions asked. At the same time, I am livid over what the Wizards are getting back for their key assets. And I put that far more on the owner, Monumental Sports and Entertainment founder and CEO Ted Leonsis, and the previous team president and general manager, Tommy Shepard, than I do on Michael Winger, Will Dawkins, and Travis Schlank. Winger, Dawkins, and Schlank are cleaning up a mess that Ted and Tommy created. But just take a step back. The Wizards in these reported trades of Bradley Beal and Chris Dapps Porzingis aren't getting back a single first round pick. Just let that sink in. In these reported trades of Beal and Porzingis, the Wizards aren't getting back a single first round pick. And if the Wizards end up losing Kyle Kuzma to unrestricted free agency, they won't get anything for him. And the Wizards this past January traded Rui Hachimura to the Los Angeles Lakers for pennies on the dollar. So the Wizards possibly slash probably in parting with Bradley Beal, Chris Dapps Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma, and Rui Hachimura aren't getting back a single first round pick. That is an outrage. That is asset mismanagement of the highest order. That is asset management malpractice of the highest order. And this is what happens when you have no direction, have no plan, and end up waiting too long to rebuild. There's still a lot more that we have to figure out with what's happening here with the Wizards, including what's going to happen with Chris Paul, who the Wizards are getting back from the Phoenix Suns in the Bradley Beal trade. Does Paul get traded? Do the Wizards buy Paul out? Uh, You know, the Wizards are set to have three guys in Tyus Jones, Monte Morris, and DeLon Wright entering contract seasons. Might one or two or all of them get traded this offseason? And who knows what will happen with the Wizards in the 2023 draft in which they are set to have four picks. But only one of those picks is a first-round pick. Bradley Beal, Chris Dapps Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma, and Rui Hachimura, all almost certainly gone and not a single first-round pick coming back. That is brutal. The damn Washington Wizards! Yeah, that's why I play that Stephen A. Smith drop, okay? Uh, But again, I do like and do endorse what Michael Winger, Will Dawkins, and Travis Schlank are doing, because what they are doing needs to be done. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. 
Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Well, this is episode 600 of the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, this episode is for Thursday, June 22nd. Uh, we now are five weeks away from the start of 2023 Commanders Training Camp. Uh, 2023 Commanders Camp will get going on July 27th. Uh, this is a time of year in which we can uh, very much take in and assess and contemplate things with our football team. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, someone who does a really good job and a really thorough job of covering the commanders, Zach Selby, senior writer for commanders.com. You could follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Selby WC with Zach spelled Z-A-C-H. Hey, Zach, good to talk to you. How are you? Yeah, I mean, great to talk to you as well. I mean, it's uh, it's it's always weird this time of year, right? Because we're in so much action, like all the times so you realize, oh wait, there's like another two months where we're actually able to talk about real football <laughs> stuff, quote unquote. And then you have like this weird period, like six to seven weeks, where it's like, well, there's not really a whole lot to talk about, so we're just gonna have to keep bringing up the uh, <laughs> the, the OTAs and mini camp stuff and get you ready for training camp, but. It's an exciting time either way. Like I'm, I'm, I cannot wait for this season to start. Probably more so than other years, honestly, just because of all the excitement that could be that could happen this year. Excitement about the roster. Excitement about the coaching staff. Um, it, it really could be. You know, I've been covering the team for go. This will be my fifth season, and it probably I probably haven't been this excited for for a season, and pretty much since my first season when I got here in 2019. 
Wow, good to hear that. Uh, so the Commanders this offseason held six OTA practices and three mandatory minicamp practices. Two of the six OTA practices and all three of the mandatory minicamp practices were open to reporters. But you, as an employee of the team, were allowed to watch those four OTA practices that were not open to reporters. Is that correct? Yes, actually. So that was uh, that was some that was a, a privilege that was afforded to me this year. First time that really we've been, I've been able to do that. Um, took the initiative and asked for it, and they were like, "Yeah, as long as uh, you know you can give us a give us a heads up and an eye on what you're actually writing," uh, which is something that you know I have to deal with other more so than you know external media. But yeah, I was able to watch the, the team. You know, whenever that the other media wasn't here, and, um, and a lot of it is really similar to to what you were seeing you know, whenever the media was out there. Just, I got a bigger sample size of it. And I think, you know, I think what really impressed me the most was Sam Powell, um, you know, because there was a lot of speculation about what he was going to be, right? Because, yeah, like he did enough to win against the Cowboys in Week 18, but uh, he was still a fifth-round pick with not a whole lot of big sample size in terms of what he could actually become. And I've have, I didn't see anything that made me question, like, oh, can he actually do this? Can he really be the starter heading into 2023? He looked exactly as you would expect him to. He looked accurate. He does a really good job of throwing throwing the ball into traffic and really putting it on, on receivers. I mean, a lot of receivers have uh, talked about how he, he throws basically dots out there. Uh, Logan Thomas has become one of his favorite targets in terms of making uh, contested catches. Um, he's You know, the footwork, I think, has gotten better. Um, there are probably some areas where I would I would still want to see more of him, more of him, more improvements from him. Specifically, maybe like in the red zone where things are happening a little bit quicker. The processing needs to be a little bit faster than what he was, you know, used to in North Carolina, obviously. Um, but for the most part, he's looked exactly as I thought he would. He was honestly he was my favorite uh, quarterback coming out of the draft a couple of years ago, just because of his arm talent. And there's like I said, there's nothing that makes me think that he can't be the commander's starting quarterback in week one. Yeah, I'm excited about Sam Howell, and I get that there are zero guarantees with this guy, but I do think that there's a real upside with him. Uh, As we have established, no member of the media saw more of the commander's offseason practices than you did. Uh, You and a piece that came out on June 14th on commanders.com, headline, quote, four things we learned about Washington's offense this offseason, end quote, had as the number one item quarterback Sam Howell looking the part. I asked this next question uh, not to get you to trash two guys who are no longer with Washington, but for a point of reference, would you say that Sam Howell as the team's QB1 during this offseason's practices looked better than Carson Wentz as the team's QB1 in the 2022 offseason practices and Ryan Fitzpatrick as the team's QB1 in the 2021 offseason practices. So I would I would say, you know, you are right. It's, I mean, it's I've seen 10 different starting quarterbacks <laughs> in the last, you know, four, four or five years now. So it's definitely been an interesting ride. But I would say that he, he does it, – it's always hard to say, like, you know, someone's better or worse because some players don't practice very well. Some players, you know, just don't have that different kind of talent level. Um, but I would say he he does some things better than than a lot of the quarterbacks I've seen. Uh, I think one thing that I really do like about him is that he gets the ball out really quickly. I think then that was something the first the first pass that he had in that game against the Cowboys. Like, wait, zipped out there to Terry. I was like, oh, 
that's a little different than what I've than what than what I've seen and what I've been used to. And he looks exactly like that uh, with OTAs and minicam. He gets the ball really quickly, and he's not afraid to give his players chances to go out there and make plays. I mean, that's something that I really do appreciate because, yeah, we know he has the arm talent, and I think we've had we've seen a lot of quarterbacks for watching this. He has supposedly had the, the quote-unquote cannon for an arm, um, but we hadn't really seen a lot of them really stretch the field vertically. We haven't seen a lot of the a lot of the instances of them, you know, just going basically saying, "All right, Terry, go get this ball thirty yards downfield. Go get it forty yards downfield. Go make this play over on the other defensive back." And that's something that I have noticed about Sam is that he will do that. He will let his players try to go out there and make these impact, game changing, drive changing plays. Now, this doesn't always work, right? I mean, like those those passes are very lower percentage success rate compared to some of these other shorter intermediate throws, but. He does put it on the players, and he gives he gives often gives them a chance where it's only them that's going to that's going to make these plays. Now, sometimes like there there was one play where he um, he tried to he tried to fit the ball to to receiver with three different three different defenders around him, and Jerry Reeves ended up catching the ball. And you know, obviously that's gonna that's gonna come with you being a second year player who really only has I mean I, I forget the exact snap count. That he had against the Cowboys, but it wasn't a it wasn't a ton, and you know Matt has really only been what we've seen in practice. But I do think that with time, he's going to learn to be able to win to take his shots and when where to exactly put the ball a little bit better in those situations. But I do like that he's willing to do that, and I think that's something that I haven't really seen as much from maybe other quarterbacks or either because they haven't been able, haven't had the same success rate of doing it or they just don't have the ability for it. Like Alex Smith, for example, like, yeah, he's, he's a veteran. He, he know, he knew how to turn up, he know how to not turn over the ball, but he wasn't really exactly known for slinging it downfield and spreading it out and things like that. He was more, you know, the quote unquote game manager and trying to just make slowly chunk the offense down the field. Sam, the other hand, he, he's going to be doing some of that, but he's also going to, when he needs to get it out to Terry or Jahan or Curtis, he's not afraid to do that. You work at the Commander's team facility. You talk to a lot of the players. A number of Commander's offensive players have praised Sam Howell. Is there something in particular said by a player about Sam that especially stands out to you? I think the biggest thing, and it's probably not just a one player, it's a lot of players, is how he has taken on a leadership role. And obviously like you, you want that from your starting quarterback, right? Because you can't, especially in this day and age, you cannot be a, a starting quarterback and be, you know, soft spoken or kind of just take the, the beta personality you know, of just kind of letting others around you lead. You need to be able to take on that role for yourself in whatever manner or style that you want to do. But either way, you have to be able to take on that leadership role and just say, yes, I'm the captain of this offense. I'm the one who's going to help us and distribute the ball wherever we need to go. And he has done that by all accounts. And, you know, Rivera has has mentioned how he really appreciates the work ethic and how he's dived into this into this approach to how he needs to step up and be, you know, the leader of the offense and I think I think that speaks a lot of volumes because that's not always something that a lot of young quarterbacks are able to do. Yeah, like every quarterback is going to try to do that, but there are varying success rates in terms of that. And I mean, this is I, mean, I wouldn't say this is a old roster, but there's at this point in the NFL, like there are, there are a lot of players who have seen a lot of different styles of quarterback. I mean, Terry McLaurin is one of them. He's he's caught passes from you know nine or ten of those quarterbacks that we talked about and. You know, he's seen a lot of different styles and, you know, 
they all demand, you know, they, they need to see something. They, they need to have their respect earned. And it seems like he has done exactly that. I mean, he has really taken charge of the offense. He's very good at auto-correcting himself. He's very good at admitting his own mistakes. He's very good at being very even keel about things. And, you know, Biennemi has... He's been very, you know, vocal. Let's just say, let's just call it that. Um, and sometimes he is not afraid to call Sam out on some play. I mean, you know, I think a couple of reporters have mentioned how Miami told all the starting offense to get off the field after after a botch play with him, involved Sam fumbling a snap and and the play kind of basically just being dead. And you know, as as Sam was going back to where the other quarterbacks were, the enemy was just you know pretty much telling him, "Hey, you have to do this. You have to be. You have to get them right. You have to catch the ball. You have to, you know, you have to do all this other stuff." And you know, he didn't he didn't have he didn't have a change his demeanor. He didn't have a change in his style or his you know any anything else. I mean, he approached it like. Like like any other play, and I think that's a lot of things that you know the enemy appreciate. That's something that the coaches appreciate. I think that's something that the players appreciate too, because they know they're going to get the same consistency out of Sam no matter what. He's and he's not a raw raw guy. He's not someone who's going to get in players' faces and tell them you know what they need to do and how he needs he wants them to run certain routes to get the ball. But he is he does have a certain you know, expectation about what to do, and he's he's very good at getting the players to rally around him. That's something that I've really been appreciative and respected the most about him is how well he's been so much of a leader, just seeing, you know, in the few snaps of the, that we've seen him so far. We're talking with Zach Selby, senior writer for Commanders.com. Another observation that you had in your piece on the four things that we learned about the Commanders offense this offseason had to do with the new assistant head coach slash Offensive coordinator, as you wrote, quote, Eric Bieniemy's influence is felt at all times, end quote. Uh, this Bieniemy stuff this offseason has been really interesting. He clearly is having a lot of input on things. What sticks with you regarding Bieniemy? His standards are, I mean, they're, they're obvious, they're so high. And I think one thing that, you know, obviously, we don't need to go into Eric Bieniemy's rep- reputation, right? Like we all know that he's considered, you know, one of the better, you know, offensive coordinators in the league, I and mean, he's he's got a he's got a he's got a long resume of being very successful. Even though Andy Reid was the play caller at Kansas City, I mean, he's he's been he's held the court history one of the best offenses in football, and it from the from from the moment rookie minicamp started. It was different, right? I mean, even the, I mean, it wasn't maybe as as boisterous and loud as it was with the veterans or in OTAs and minicamp. But he makes it very clear about what he expects. And he makes it very clear about how he wants it done in his way. And if he if it if you fail to uh, achieve in either one of those regards, he's going to find somebody else who can do that. And he's going to give you another chance, obviously, because it's, it's you know it's June and May, and you know there's there are plenty of other opportunities to figure out who's going to be on the starting lineup. But I mean, he's 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 taking players out of, of of plays. I mean, he's he's taking them out of formations. He's he said, look, like, if you if you're not ready, somebody else will be. And I think that's something that you know I don't want to say like this team needed, but I do think it's a, it's a nice it's a nice. Uh, change i guess you could you could say and i think the players have really responded well to it um because i think you know this this team i think this offense i 
it it has talent. Like it's, and I know you know it was in the bottom half of the league in yards and points and things like that. But there there is legitimate talent on this offense. I mean, you look at this, this receiving class, and I think I would stack it up against most, if not all, of the receiving classes in in the league right now. So they they want to be good. They want they want the the production to match the talent that they think they have on offense, and they know the only way to do it is through this way that the enemy is showing them. And it's not going to be easy all the time. In fact, it's once training camp hits, I I mean, I can't imagine what it's going to be like when, you know, the closer you get to whenever these, these final roster decisions have to be made and the enemy is just going to be all over these guys. But they have taken it very well. And I think there are some, uh, I don't want to say like there are some players who would, wouldn't do that, but I think, you know, that style is not necessarily for everybody. And it didn't. It doesn't sound that's the case with with any of these players. I mean, they they really appreciate the fact that they're being held to a certain standard because they know they they know what to expect now. They know the standards high, but they also know that hey, this is where I need to be if I need if I want to get this approval. If I want to make a difference on this team, and I, I think it it goes from it, from pre snap to even after the snap is after the snap is done. I mean. It's quick. It's it's fast. Like they're they're they are told to get to the line quickly. They are told to execute quickly. And the pace, I think, is going to be so interesting. Uh, and I think it's gonna I think it's gonna be so much better than it was, you know, a year ago. And you know, I, I I think it's unfair to say that you know, oh yeah, uh, the the commanders' offense is going to go from you know being twentieth or twenty first in the league to top five offense. I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's going to be realistic, but I do think there is going to be a noticeable turnaround where they are definitively better than they were last year. That would be great. Uh, Let's talk commander's defense. Edge defender Chase Young, he did not attend any of the OTA practices. He did attend all three of the mandatory minicamp practices. How did he look to you as uh, he's now about a year and a half removed from severely injuring his right knee? You know, I think think he looks... You know, it, it, you don't want to get too crazy about the fact that it's just it's just you know drills with no contact and all that. But I think he, in terms of what he showed us, he looks really good. Um, I think the confidence and I think the uh, the hesitation, you know, where we're always where things you're going to be watching for because he was he was often hesitant during you know during the season during practice to kind of make sure to trust his knee and make sure that he was able to do some things that we know that he's capable of doing. It looked like there is no hesitation from him at all. I mean, he's rushing into these offensive linemen with, you know, no fear at all. And I think that that plays very well to what this this defense can be. Um, you know, Chase is Chase is obviously a very talented athlete. I mean, he's number two overall pick in 2020 for a reason. He's got this natural ability to affect the game in so many different ways besides rushing the passer. passer. And it, it looks like he's got a lot of, what made him so good in 2020 it looks like he has that back and it's going to be more interesting whenever contact happens going to be more you're going to be able to learn more whenever uh the pads come on and we're at the, the the practice is a little more live and up tempo but in terms of what we saw i don't i i think it alleviated a lot of concerns in terms of what we think he could be uh, in in this season and I, i'm really excited to see what he can do because this this defensive line was already one of the best uh, in football without him and if he comes back and he's motivated and he's ready to to really just be back to what he was I think this defensive line could be I mean could be the best in football and I don't think that's a hyper hyperbole to say that 
Last one for you. You and a piece that came out on June 15th on Commanders.com, headline, quote, four things we learned about Washington's defense this offseason, end quote, wrote about Chase Young. You also wrote about the team's improved linebacker depth, including Kalik Hudson. A lot of buzz about Kalik Hudson having had a good offseason. What jumps out to you? The linebacker depth was had opportunity to step up with Jamin Davis dealing with a cleanup procedure on his knee. Uh, wasn't able to participate in anything outside of individual drills. Um, and Khalid Hudson was one of those guys that got got a lot more attention. And he now he did have his moments in coverage where he was he laughs a little bit, but this guy was I mean he made some he made some plays and. He, you know, one thing that I really did, you know, we talked about athleticism with Chase Young, and Kalik has a lot of this, like, not the same athleticism, maybe, but he has a lot of athleticism is, is a big part of his game, too. But he was a big part of, you know, Michigan's defense. He was in that kind of like, uh, kind of in a role similar to what Cam Curl is now. Like, it's versatility is moving all around, all, all around the field, and he has the ability to do that. Um, you know, I, I would say that he's. He's got a lot of that talent, and it showed itself in a lot of different ways. I think, I think you know, his confidence is is taking a big boost, um, especially after that game against the Cowboys, because you know during this during tra- during training camp last year, there was a lot of questions about what what exactly is this guy's career going to be, um, and you know he eventually got his opportunity. First starting over a year against Dallas and. Really, really, I think impressed a lot of people. I think a lot, I think he and a lot of the coaches really believed that he they might have turned something around with him. And you know, we'll see how training camp goes. Um, but I really do think that if he can, if he can hit, you know, there's only six linebackers on this roster right now, and I doubt all of them will be on the active roster whenever the season starts. But he, if he's one of those guys, that ends up making it, and he ends up being, you know, similar to what we've seen so far in OTAs, minicamp, and then last year against Dallas, I think that I think you feel pretty good, or at least better, about the depth of linebacker behind Jamin and Cody Barton. I think you you feel pretty good about knowing you have an athletic, fast guy who knows how to make tackles. Uh, maybe has a little more work to do in coverage, but can hold his own uh, in certain situations. So we'll see what happens. But I, I do think he he definitely has a lot of coaches' attention. I think he has a lot of players and his teammates' attention about what he could possibly be. Would be great to see him do well. Zach Selby, senior writer for Commanders.com. Terrific insight on the team. Uh, Zach, thanks a lot. Yeah, appreciate you having me on, and uh, hopefully whenever training camp here, it's we'll, uh, we'll have a whole lot to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Kalik Hudson, the Redskins took him with the second of their two fifth-round picks in the 2020 NFL Draft. Uh, the pick that the team used to take Kalik was acquired in March 2020 in the trade of corner Quinton Dunbar to the Seattle Seahawks. Old Dunny, <laughs> remember him. Well, as we are in the midst of episode 600 of the Al Galdi podcast, you hopefully know that the Skins slash Washington football team slash Commanders conversation on this show never stops. I talk about the team on every installment of the podcast, no matter the time of year. And the Commanders conversation also never stops at WSH on the daily on Instagram. Yeah, at WSH on the daily on IG. On the Daily started in 2021 and yet has nearly 22,000 followers. And On the Daily is literally daily. Uh, the page is updated every day. News, notes, reports, photos, graphics, uh, 
This is a page that properly sources and vets its news and information, doesn't just, you know, post anything that anyone says. Uh, on the Daily on Instagram is a great place at which you can converse with other Commanders fans regarding the team, uh, the draft, free agency, trades. Uh, on the Daily responds to every single DM. On the Daily is a page at which you can have fun, lots of creativity with jersey swaps and unique graphics and the contest name that Redskin and free wallpaper Wednesday, which is when On The Daily gives out free wallpaper that you can use on your phone. Uh, and On The Daily always has a great, fresh look. If you're on Instagram, check out at WSH On The Daily for smart, informative, fun, and engaging Commander's content. Check out at WSH On The Daily on Instagram. Well, before we get to what happened with the Nationals in their game on Wednesday, we're going to right now do more on the Big Nats news from Tuesday evening. A major development in the Masson dispute, which has been going on and on and on since April 2012. Washington Post National Baseball writer Chelsea Janes and Washington Post sports and media reporter Ben Strauss, they on Tuesday evening broke the news that the Orioles have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed to the Nats for 2012 through 2016, about $100 million. Now, this doesn't mean that the Masson dispute is over because the two sides still have to figure out money for years since 2016, but this agreement is a big step forward and perhaps makes determining fees easier moving forward. On Wednesday's show, episode 599 went in-depth on this uh, development in the Masson dispute, and I'm right now pleased to welcome to the Yao Galdi podcast the person who broke the story, Chelsea Janes, national baseball writer for the Washington Post. You can follow her on Twitter, at Chelsea underscore Janes. Chelsea, congrats on the big scoop. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. As you know, nothing with this mass in dispute has been simple or easy or harmonious. Were you surprised that the O's agreed to pay the Nats the remaining money owed for 2012 through 2016? I wasn't stunned um, because they had really exhausted sort of all possible appeals that anyone could brainstorm in the courts and kind of seeing the courts say, no, you, you agreed to this deal. This is what you're going to have to pay. But I do think it's kind of funny that they just kind of quietly paid it. I think it happened a little bit ago and didn't really want to say anything and admit it. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something I don't think we were sure would ever happen. So the fact that it's happened at all is is very noteworthy. What is next in the Masson dispute is determining the money that's owed to the Nats for 2017 through 2021. To what extent does what the Nats are getting for 2012 through 2016 provide a template for 2017 through 2021? Because, I mean, just thinking about 17 through 21, we do have the two COVID-impacted seasons of 2020 and 2021. So I think the template is, is there, you know, the, the deal itself sort of called for this process where the sides go in front of a committee and they say how much they think it's worth when the committee rules and mass and slash the Orioles are supposed to pay. And I think what this decision and, and what the Orioles sort of learned from 2012 to 2016 is that some of the ways they were going to try to challenge the authority of that committee just aren't going to work. So in that sense, I think you know, 2017 to 21, as they start that hearing process, which could ha is supposed to happen in the next month, it's there's just fewer legal options for them to kind of 
gum it up, I guess you could say. Um, and I think, to your point, another thing that's going to make that easier is the, the number is going to be less. It's going to be a smaller number because of the COVID years. Um, and that's going to be true for, for the five-year increments to come, too, because with all the cord cutting and, and you know, the bankruptcy of, of some of the other companies that broadcast MLB games, there's a lot of evidence that the cable rights just aren't worth what they used to be. So these payouts are going to be smaller and smaller, and I think that's going to make them more palatable to Baltimore, and I think that's just going to kind of make these go a little bit more quickly moving forward. So the massive dispute pretty clearly has been the biggest impediment to the learners selling the Nats. Do you see the dispute being resolved to where the Nats could be sold sometime within, say, the next year, or not necessarily? I think it helps a lot. I think there was a lot of concern, well, one, that anyone would want to buy into litigation that has gone on so long and been so expensive, and two, that anyone would want to buy a professional sports franchise that didn't own its own television rights and couldn't say how much money they'd be getting from them for the next 10, 15 years. And now, even though they can't say exactly how much they're going to be getting, there is reason to believe that every five years they will have a an easier process of determining that number. So I think just it sort of clears the books of just some of the the stuff that made the Nationals a little bit less appealing. It doesn't fix all of them. But I do think that it, it can't hurt. And I think the ongoing assumption is that Ted Leonsis wants to buy this team, that he'll find a way to buy this team. And, you know, with this kind of cleared out, I think that gets a little bit easier. So I do think it, it makes it easier, but I don't know if it, if it hurries the timeline a whole lot. You mentioned Ted Leonsis. Uh, the last that we heard on the sale of the Nats uh, was from you and others at the Washington Post via a report this past April 19th that, quote, Ted Leonsis offered more than $2 billion to buy the Washington Nationals from the Lerner family late last year, according to three people with knowledge of the situation. It's not clear whether the Learners rejected the offer or simply did not respond to it, end quote. Now, Forbes, each of the last two marches, uh, March 2022 and March 2023, has valued the Nats as being worth $2 billion. Ted having offered more than $2 billion to buy the Nats prior uh, to this potential resolution of the mass in dispute seemed like a more than fair offer. Am I missing something? You're not. And and I think it's it was even more than two. We couldn't really pin down the exact number, but you know, the exact number itself I've been told was really fair, especially when you compare it to, you know, what Steve Cohen paid for the Mets in New York City and stuff like that. It, you know, I think it was a really reasonable number. Uh, one of the things that, that I have heard and I, I don't know how much this is affecting the process is that you know, in order for, for him to sort of complete this purchase, particularly if he needs to take on a lot of debt or, or restructure things to do so, you know, he not only has to get approval of the other 29 Major League Baseball teams to, to look at his finances and say, we think you're going to be a viable owner, but he also has to have NHL and, NF- and NBA teams sign off since he's in those leagues too. So I think there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes as he tries to kind of get the money in place for something like this. Um, but you know, if he made that offer before this deal was completed, before, you know, he had a clear idea that the math and stuff might get easier moving forward, one would have to think that, you know, this this helps that deal even more reasonable. And I, you know, I don't know what the trigger point is going to be for the Nats themselves to say, let's do it. But uh, I certainly think the fact that he made a fair offer before this makes you think that he could probably also make a fair offer, fair offer after it. 
We're talking with Chelsea Janes, national baseball writer for the Washington Post about the Masson dispute. Uh, you, in your report this past April 19th, also said that Ted Leonsis had expressed an interest in buying Masson. How realistic is Ted or any potential Nats owner buying Masson? Not very. Uh, I think that was him kind of trying to buy his way out of the chaos. Um, the Orioles said at the time, you know, Masson's not for sale, and and that makes sense. I mean, it's, they have this crazy arrangement that no other sports team has, where you know they get to control the Nats' TV rights, and I don't think they're going to want to give that up. But uh, it does show you, I think, how big a roadblock Leonsis thought Masson was that he was willing to kind of just pay his way out of a problem, um, which maybe isn't quite as big a problem anymore. Ultimately, with this Masson dispute, are we headed for a resolution by which the Nats gain control? of their local television rights? I think they're going to stick kind of in the same arrangement. I think they're going to have to figure this out every five years, but I think what's going to make it less relevant is the fact that, you know, cord cutting is making these cable deals just not as big a deal. And major league baseball has shown that it really wants to sort of organize all the streaming rights of all the teams and put out something that's direct to consumer. Like they want to sell MLB TV in local markets and do what they've done with the Padres who they had to take over broadcast for and say, you know, you guys pay 80 bucks. You can watch Padres games in market, no blackouts. Um, you know, I think that's what they want because that's kind of the future they see. They think there's a lot of money there. And, and my understanding is that, you know, they have not given up those rights for the teams. You know, these, these teams have broadcast rights. They don't have streaming rights. So, you know, I just think that these, these broadcast rights are not going to be as big a deal anymore. And that's going to make this mass and thing feel less important than it did when everyone's getting these half billion dollar cable deals. And it, it kind of defined your payroll for the next 10 years. Yeah, the future of regional sports networks of RSNs is very much in doubt. One of the things noted in your report on Tuesday evening was that Masson, according to the research firm S&P Global Market Intelligence, has 3.3 million subscribers this year, down from 5.6 million in 2018. Big time drop off. Uh, Is Masson, and thus the Masson dispute, simply becoming obsolete? You know, I think in the way that all these these regional sports networks are kind of figuring things out, that that's that's probably where it's headed. Um, I'm not totally certain of what rights MLB has retained and what rights they gave to the Orioles in those deals. I don't think streaming was really on the radar at the time that they made the deal when the Nats moved to DC. But yeah, I mean, I think I think what your what MLB would like to see fairly soon is, you know, they have all the streaming rights. They're the ones that market those and. You know, if, if teams want cable deals, they can sell those rights. But uh, I just don't, I think that Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred thinks that, you know, those numbers are going to be much smaller than the ones they're going to be able to make, you know, streaming. Masson was created in 2005 to televise both Nationals and Orioles games off the relocation of the Montreal Expos in the 2004-2005 offseason to Washington, D.C., what had been deemed as Orioles broadcast territory. And The D.C. market had been Orioles broadcast territory. That really cannot be disputed. But what I've never understood is why the MLB commissioner at the time, Bud Selig, set up this Masson situation to be in effect in perpetuity. Like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, okay, but forever. Why did Bud give in to the Orioles lead owner at the time, Peter Angelos, like this? 
you know, I, I looked into this a little bit in the last few months, just trying to kind of go back and see what the logic was. And one of the interesting things people told me was at the time, you know, Peter Angelos, who is kind of not, you know, he's been incapacitated health wise lately, but at the time, I mean, he was a force, you know, forceful lawyer in the Baltimore scene. And I think what major league baseball wanted to avoid was a big lawsuit preventing the nationals from coming to DC in the first place. You know, they needed a home for the expos and, they needed it quick. And if, if Angelos had wanted to and sued in Baltimore courts where everyone knew him, where he was respected, you know, they might have seen that process get held up in a way that was really disruptive. So, uh, you know, I think I think that was part of it. I think there was a lot of urgency on the part of MLB. And frankly, I think they just thought it would work. Like, I, I think they thought they had set up a process by which the teams could both argue their cases in front of a committee and figure things out. And I think they might have underestimated sort of the personal uh, pettiness and stuff that kind of goes on when two teams in close proximity fight over that much money. Peter Angelos has been in failing health for a long time now. Uh, there is a belief that when he passes, the Angelos family will sell the O's. Uh, there, of course, is no guarantee of that. But would a sale of the O's fundamentally change the Masson situation? Yeah, I think I think everybody... Anybody who could have a situation where they own TV rights to two teams would want it. Uh, I also just don't know that the that sale is imminent. You know, the, the Orioles did hire a firm a couple years ago to kind of explore that. But what we've seen from John Angelos, at least in, in the last six months, maybe, is just a really concerted PR campaign to say, we're staying in Baltimore. Like, we're here, we want to own the team, and we want it to be in Baltimore. And, you know, there had been rumors that maybe they'd move to Nashville because John Angelos has a company there. But... You know, that doesn't seem nearly as likely as it once did, simply because, you know, the city of Baltimore and, and Maryland, they've committed, I think it's like half a billion dollars to stadium improvements, to development around Camden Yards. There's sort of all these reasons why Baltimore is, is where you would want to be right now. So, and, and frankly, Angelos has just said, we're not moving, we're not selling. So we know that those people lie and things change, but uh, it certainly seems like a tenor has changed a little bit around that team where, where now... You know, who knows what happens when Peter Angelos dies, but but certainly John Angelos has said, like, we're here, we're in it. And there's every reason to believe with the, the health of the team on the field and the, and the money coming in off of it that, that that's going to be a, a good opportunity for him. Last one for you. You know the Nats well. Uh, the Nats last July 2nd announced that they had exercised the 2023 contract options on President of Baseball Operations and General Manager Mike Rizzo and Manager Davey Martinez. The Nats in September 2020 had announced multi-year contract extensions for both Mike and Davey. The reporting was that each guy got a three-year extension, but we in May 2022 learned that each extension, in fact, was a two-year extension with a club option for 2023. Given the Nats' ownership uncertainty, should we expect to see this uh, year-to-year contract dance with Mike and Davey continue? You know, I think I think you'll see the year-to-year dance continue, but I also think that it might be the last year simply because I simply because I think, you know, it's possible they could kind of figure out the sale before next year. But it's certainly a really awkward position to be in. I, I don't remember a sports team being in this position where you don't know who the owner is, so you kind of just have to keep everybody in place and try not to pay them too much so the next owner doesn't have to fire them and pay them a lot. It's just kind of awkward. But, you know, I, I don't see any reason for the learners to sort of, you know, get rid of Rizzo or Davey if they're owning the team and don't plan to own it long term. It just kind of allows the next guy to put his people in place. But 
you know, we're going on three, four years of this kind of uncertainty to dance now. And uh, I don't think that's good for anybody. <laughs> no, it's not. Chelsea Janes, national baseball writer for the Washington Post. Chelsea, thank you very much. All the best. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the Nationals on Tuesday night had maybe their ugliest game of the season, a 9-3 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park in a game at which starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore struggled and got into a heated dugout confrontation with center fielder Victor Robles. Well, the Nats on Wednesday played in perhaps their ugliest conditions of the season, but the Nats won a 3-0 win over the Cardinals to avoid a three-game sweep on what was a rainy and windy day at Nationals Park. It's a minor miracle that the game was not delayed at any point, but the game was not delayed, and the Nats won the game. Uh, This is just their fifth win over the last 21 games. A rare win for the boys these days. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir. Nats manager David Martinez. He has not had much reason to be proud of the boys lately, but the boys did win on Wednesday. Uh, the Nats improved to 28 and 45. Uh, that is the second worst record in the National League. Very good pitching by the Nats on Wednesday. Trevor Williams and three relievers combined on a seven hit shutout. Uh, Williams was coming off maybe his worst start of the season. 6-5 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park this past Friday night. Williams in that game allowed five runs in four into third innings, but Williams on Wednesday was good. Six scoreless innings. He had four strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just five hits, a double, and four singles, and he threw a lot of strikes. He over 75 pitches through 50 strikes versus 25 balls. Uh, this was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Wednesday evening on Trevor Williams, and you'll hear a follow-up exchange about why Davey pulled Williams after just 75 pitches. I just mixing in all his pitches. He really had good stuff um, today, you know. Uh, when he gets around that, that 75, 80, 80 pitch mark, uh, you know, for him, because, you know, he's had, he hasn't started really in, in a, that's the first time he started in a year or so. So, you know, that that's, to me, is good enough when we have, you know, Mason health, you know, ready to go and those other guys in the back end of the bullpen. I mean, they all they all did the, their job today. And it was tough, tough to pitch out there today. What goes into the decision when he's pitching that efficiently, but you're still trying to... Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, I, I always have things mapped out, you know, certain innings, certain times of the game. And, um, you know, if he, you know, if he would have got uh, Newpar, he would have got one more. Um, if Renato gets on, then he would probably been done, too. So, you know, but I thought it was a perfect, perfect spot for, uh, for Mason to come in right there. Yeah, I did not have a problem with Davey Martinez pulling Trevor Williams after just 75 pitches. Williams is a guy for whom the third time through the order penalty is a concern. And the goal of a manager is to pull the starting pitcher before he starts struggling, not after. So I did not have an issue with Davey pulling Williams when Davey did. Trevor Williams overall has been solid for the Nats. Uh, The Nats, this past December 10th, officially announced having agreed with Williams on a two-year free agent contract. The deal is a two-year, $13 million contract. This season is his age 31 season. And Williams now, in this 2023 regular season, 15 starts, an ERA of 414. Uh, Not great, but not bad. You can work with a number three or number four starter who has an ERA in the low fours. I do think that Trevor Williams is a viable trade ship for the Nats. Uh, The 2023 MLB trade deadline 
is on August 1st. Uh, good job by the Nats bullpen on Wednesday. Three Nats relievers combined for three scoreless innings. Mason Thompson in the top of the seventh faced three batters and got two outs. Kyle Finnegan tossed one and a third scoreless innings. He came into the game in a pretty tight spot. Top of the seventh, runners on second and third, two outs, and the Nats nursing a 2-0 lead, but he induced a ground out by Dylan Carlson for the third out. Finnegan then tossed a scoreless top of the eighth, despite giving up a one-out single, followed by a one-out walk, and Hunter Harvey tossed a scoreless top of the ninth. So a no drama game for the Nats bullpen on Wednesday, although we did have some bullpen news prior to the game. The Nats on Wednesday afternoon placed reliever Carl Edwards Jr. on the 15-day injured list, retroactive to Tuesday with right shoulder inflammation, and recalled lefty reliever Joe LaSorsa from AAA Rochester. So the Nats finally have a lefty reliever in their bullpen. This has been an issue for so much of this season. The Nats either not having a lefty reliever in the bullpen or not having an effective lefty reliever in the team's bullpen. The Nats on June 8th announced that they had claimed Joe LaSorsa off waivers from the Tampa Bay Rays and had optioned him to AAA Rochester. This season is LaSorsa's age 25 season. He, in this regular season, made his Major League regular season debut, totaled just two games and allowed one run in four and a third innings with the Rays before being designated for assignment by them on June 3rd. He certainly seems to have been DFA'd by the Rays due to a roster crunch as opposed to him having been really bad. Uh, So listen, this is the kind of thing that a rebuilding team like the Nats should be doing, taking a flyer on a guy like Joe LaSorsa. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. is having a shaky season, so we'll see how Joe LaSorsa does. Uh, As for how the Nats offense did in the rain on Wednesday, actually, all things considered, pretty well. Uh, Now, the Nats scored just three runs, worked just one walk, and went just one for five with runners in scoring position. But the Nats did total 10 hits, uh, had a good number of extra base hits. I mean, these were not ideal hitting conditions, uh, although the rain at times uh, did work in the favor of the batters. But three Nats batters stood out in particular on Wednesday. C.J. Abrams, Luis Garcia, and Jamer Candelario. Uh, Abrams came into the series reeling as a batter, but he, over the three games, went six for nine with a solo homer, a double, a normal single, three infield singles, a walk, and a stolen base. Uh, Abrams was at that starting shortstop and number nine batter at all three games in the series. He, on Wednesday, went three for three with a solo homer, and two infield singles. Uh, Abrams in the bottom of the third had a one-out opposite field infield single to the left side of the infield. Abrams in an at one-run fifth hit a two-out opposite field solo homer to left field for a one-nothing Nats lead. And Abrams in the bottom of the seventh had a two-out infield single on a grounder that went off the Cardinals starting pitcher, Miles Michaelis. Uh, this was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Wednesday evening on C.J. Abrams. And you'll hear Davey reference the Nats hitting coach, Darnell Coles. It was good. And the fact that he stayed on the ball as well as he did and hit the ball the other way. Um, you know, he's been working with Darnell, you know, about staying on the ball. You know, he's, he's got, he, the ball jumps off his bat. It really does. So, you know, when we keep him in the middle of the field, um, he's going he's gonna to be really good. And, and uh, you saw that today, you know, home run, base hit back at the pitcher. Um, that's the that's kind of hitter we see in him, you know, that he's going to hit the ball and every now and then he's going to generate some power and uh, and do that. So um, it was, it was good, good, good day for him at the plate and good day for him fielding as well, you know. It was raining hard at the time. Did you think this might be it? No, no. Not around here, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was CJ's first opposite home run as a member of the Nationals. So was that kind of nice for you to see? Yeah, it was nice. I think me, it was me, me, Bogey, uh, and JT were all blocked. Go, go, go. So it was nice to see him hit it. So how about that? CJ Abrams, his first opposite field regular season home run with the Nats. Uh, Luis Garcia, he had a good series. He opened the three games, went four for 11 with a triple, two doubles, a two-run single, an RBI sack fly, and an RBI ground out. Uh, Garcia was at starting second baseman and number two batter in all three games in the series. Garcia on Wednesday, two for four with two leadoff opposite field doubles off the left center field warning track in plate appearances in which he was down in the count at 1.02. These were basically two identical hits in two identical plate appearances, but Garcia in the Nats, one run six, a leadoff opposite field double off the left center field warning track, despite having been down in the count at 1.02, and Garcia in the Nats, one run eighth, a leadoff full count, opposite field double off the left center field warning track, despite having been down in that count at 1.02. And then Jamer Candelario, he on Wednesday as an at starting third baseman and number three batter, one for four with an RBI double and an RBI ground out. Candelario in the Nats, one run six, an RBI double to center field and off the glove of a diving Cardinal center fielder in Tommy Edmond for a 2-0 Nats lead. Although Candelario was thrown out in an attempt to stretch the double into a triple and yet another instance of a Nationals player making it out on the base paths. Uh, Candelario in the Nats one run eighth had an RBI ground out. But Jamer Candelario, believe it or not, came into Wednesday number one among all National League third basemen in wins above replacement per fan grabs for this regular season at 2.1. That's pretty good. Uh, Jamer Candelario absolutely is a viable trade chip for our rebuilding Nats. Uh, he's playing for them on a one-year free agent contract. This season is his age 29 season. I mentioned the Nats on Wednesday afternoon placing Carl Edwards Jr. on the 15-day injured list. Well, he was not the only Nat who was placed on an IL on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, the Nats on Wednesday afternoon placed center fielder Victor Robles on the 10-day injured list with back spasms in the lumbar spine. So Robles is back on the 10-day IL. He was on the 10-day injured list from May 8th, retroactive to May 7th, to June 16th due to back spasms. And now he's back on the 10-day IL. Uh, Robles in the 9-3 loss to the Cardinals on Tuesday night did go two for four with two singles, but he did not look like himself due to the ailing back. And he got into that heated dugout exchange with starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore. And the Nats on Wednesday afternoon, as the corresponding roster move to placing Robles on the 10-day injured list, selected the contract of outfielder Derek Hill from AAA Rochester. Uh, Derek Hill was a non-roster invitee to 2023 Nats spring training. This season is his age 27 season. The Detroit Tigers took Hill with the number 23 overall pick in the 2024 MLB draft out of a high school in California. And he was the Nats starting center fielder on Wednesday. Uh, Derek Hill in this 3-0 win over the Cardinals was the Nats starting center fielder and number eight battery went one for three with an infield single. The guy can run. He in the bottom of the third had a wet out infield single on an 0-2 pitch on a grounder to Cardinals shortstop Paul DeYoung deep in the hole. Next up for the Nats, a makeup game against the National League West leading Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on Thursday afternoon at 105. Jake Irvin will be the Nats starting pitcher.
Well, the Tampa Bay Rays are the best team in Major League Baseball, and the Orioles on Wednesday afternoon experienced why the Rays are the best team in MLB. A 7-2 loss at the American League East leading and Major League leading Rays for a split of a big two-game series. The O's fell to 45-28. and They now are five games behind the Rays, who improved to 52 and 25. The Orioles' best starting pitcher this season has been Tyler Wells. He was the team starting pitcher for this game, too, at the Rays, but he did not do well. Wells did not do well. Uh, he allowed four runs, two earned in five innings. He gave up four hits, two home runs, and two singles. He issued three walks. He over his five innings through 95 pitches, 58 strikes versus 37 balls. He did have six strikeouts, but Wells allowed all four of the runs in the bottom of the second, during which he gave up back-to-back home runs to begin the half inning, committed two errors, gave up an infield single, and issued a walk. Uh, First time in five starts that Tyler Wells was not good, and a big part of that was facing a Rays team that is good. Uh, This was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his post-game session with reporters on Wednesday afternoon on Tyler Wells. You know, he doesn't usually walk people, and and just thought he was kind of coming off uh, out of his delivery a little bit, a lot of yanks, and just didn't really have his command early in the game. Uh, but after that four run sec- uh, was it the second four run inning, um, played through well the last three innings. What do you think? What do you think enabled him to succeed and rebound? I think that he you know made a little bit of a mechanical adjustment, um, got more in the strike zone, more online, and uh, I thought his stuff improved after that inning. Yeah, Tyler Wells now in this regular season, 15 games, including 14 starts, an ERA of 322, a whip of 0.89. Uh, that is number one among all qualified pitchers in the majors. The Orioles' bullpen on Wednesday afternoon was bad for a second time in as many games in this series. Three Orioles relievers, Logan Gillespie, Keegan Aiken, and Cole Irvin combined to allow three runs in three innings. Gillespie is back at the major league level. The O's on Tuesday morning in a flurry of roster moves recalled Gillespie from AAA Norfolk. And Irvin has been starting for the O's. He is expected to start in the coming days, but Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters said that uh, the team just wanted to get Irvin some work. Uh, And the Orioles offense, off having been really good in the 8-6 win at the Rays on Tuesday evening, not good in this uh, 7-2 loss on Wednesday afternoon. The O's totaled just two runs, just four hits, and no walks. The O's got worked by the Rays starting pitcher, rookie Taj Bradley. Taj Bradley allowed one run in six innings with eight strikeouts. The Rays took Bradley in the fifth round of the 2018 MLB draft. He, for this regular season, over 10 starts, has an ERA of 386 and a strikeouts per nine innings of 13.04. This is what the Rays do. They find guys and develop guys. Uh, Two of the Orioles hits on Wednesday afternoon were big homers, uh, 400-plus foot leadoff homers to center field. Gunnar Henderson, he is the Orioles' starting third baseman and number one batter, two for four with a solo homer and a single. Henderson in an Orioles' one-run ninth smashed a first pitch leadoff homer to center field to cut the Orioles' deficit to 7-2. The homer winner projected 437 feet per stat cast. Uh, Gunnar Henderson's OPS for this regular season now is at 8.07. And Ramon Arias, he is the Orioles' starting first baseman at number eight batter, one for three with a solo homer. He, in an Orioles' one-run third, hit a leadoff homer to center field to cut the Orioles' deficit to 4-1. Uh, that homer went a projected 416 feet 
for StatCast. No game for the O's on Thursday. Next up for them, a nine-game homestand, beginning with a three-game series against the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this weekend. Game one Friday night at 7.05. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game two Saturday afternoon at 4.05. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And game three Sunday afternoon at 1.35. The O's had not yet announced a starting pitcher for that game, but uh, their starter for that game could be Cole Irvin. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 601. As the march to episode 700 begins, we'll provide you with more on the commanders. Also, I will react to whatever the Wizards do in Thursday night's NBA draft. And I'll talk Nationals. They on Thursday afternoon at 105 have a makeup game against the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you on Friday. The damn Washington Wizards.